0: Uh, we're going to be in First Corinthians 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, slip your hand up. We'll get one. Uh, we'll get one to you, or you can just go on uh, on the Bible app. If you are using the Bible app, we are going to be using the CSB uh, is a newer translation, and that is uh, what we'll be uh, what I'll be uh, speaking from. And so, if you want to follow along, um, you know, in that version, that that might make it easier for you, or whatever version you're comfortable with. In 2012, uh, the Apple um, iPhone, came with a new app. It was the new Maps application. This was just about a year after Steve Jobs had died, and they were trying to supplant Google Maps dominance, both online and and, in, you know, mobile application, um, GPS stuff for phones, and so they they piloted their own Maps application, and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess mess. There were tons of disasters. Not disasters, but really uh, big errors and and potential disasters if people were looking. For example, there was a a farm in Ireland called Airfield that was actually labeled as an airport, which could have been a major problem if you were a pilot looking to make an emergency landing thinking, oh, I'll just pull up my uh, Apple Maps and find an emergency spot to land. There was a Publix in Jacksonville that was labeled as a hospital. That could have been a big problem. You go in, uh, you're, you're going to the ER and you end up on the ketchup aisle. That's a problem. Uh, there were some locations that were labeled as Woolworth's Department Store. I don't even remember Woolworth's. They've been out of business for so long. Some of you, I don't know, you, uh, maybe, maybe you've uh, uh, been to a Woolworth's. I'm sure I was at some point. Uh, the Statue of Liberty disappeared completely. In the in the in the uh, the picture s- section of the of the application, and then uh, Shakespeare's hometown was just completely deleted. It just wasn't on the map. It's called Stratford upon Avon. Now some of those are just funny. Some of those are potentially uh, dangerous um, because when you're using a maps app, you're trying to get from one place to another, and if the maps app is wrong, you can actually get into this kind of situation of uh, a picture from a very highbrow uh, comedy. Uh, series that I think we're gonna put up there, uh, Rolly. If you'd put that up for us, there's a, an image. There we go. Um, yes, I know you all are much too, you're much too mature and much too spiritual to watch The Office on Netflix. And I'm not gonna tell you that I was watching The Office on Netflix. Laura was watching The Office on Netflix, and I just happened to be in the room. And it's the, it's the one where Michael gets a GPS and the, and it says turn right. And there's like a, a gradual right turn, but there's also like a boat launch ramp literally next to him. He says it, the machine can't be wrong. And he turns, and Dwight's saying, he says, the machine, no, stop yelling at me. And Dwight's saying, there's no road here. And they end up in the lake. Well, of course, that's a funny uh, we've all had those experiences where the maps app was wrong, uh, getting us where we needed to go. The map. Now, now they've got the app working pretty well, and is actually I use it all the time. I've never had an issue with it. And whenever you put in directions into the Maps application, uh, there are three keys. One, you need a mode of transportation. You need a mode of transportation. Now, when you put in a destination and get directions in the in in the app or on your GPS, you uh, often can choose you can choose walk, ride your bike, public transportation, or Uh, take your own car you could uber you whatever however you're gonna get where you're going you need a mode of transportation you also need a destination you need to have a place where you know uh, that you're going and then you need directions you need a way to get where you're going and i think we can use this as an illustration uh, for our relationships uh, the last few weeks, uh, and, and this week and next week, we're talking about w- what the Bible says about health and healing in our most important relationships. For some of that, that's our marriage. For some of us, that, that's our marriage and our kids. For some of us, that's uh, finding God's purpose for us in a season of singleness. Maybe it's uh, through being divorced. Maybe it's being widowed or widower. Maybe it's uh, never have been married. Um, some of us, that's uh, just trying to navigate healthy friendships. So many people are lonely and we're more connected than ever before and more lonely than ever before. And what we see in Jesus' call in what's often called the great commandment is the call to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. Um, we we looked at this in the last... Pe- past couple of weeks, and both of those uh, messages are on our website at crossunited.org. Uh, you can listen or watch the sermons from Mark chapter 12 and Luke 10, where we looked at uh, God's pattern, God's plan for our relationships. So, so our destination is to love God, to love the Lord, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We talked about last week how our uh, our nearest neighbors, our, our neighbors, that starts in our relationships with the people in the bed or the room next to us. And, and our, our, it, it doesn't stop there, but it starts there. That's our destination. Well, how are we going to get there? What's our transportation? Well, our transportation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when we hear of a father who sent his only begotten son to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, we begin to have power to be able to pursue God's relationships and what God has called us to live out in the relationships of the people He's called us to live it out with. And and when we begin to to see the power of God for us in the gospel and the, the crucifixion of Christ and the filling of His Holy Spirit, we begin to have power for the transportation and the journey ahead of us. We can't just think through... Uh, sort of principles, you know, you can find principles for good relationships and some practices for relationships anywhere. And some of them are going to be helpful. They're going to be helpful, sort of like wisdom tidbits, you know, you can find them on Facebook. You could, there's memes out there that are going to actually help your marriage or your, your parenting. But the problem is, if you start with principles before you have power, it doesn't matter. You can know all of the right turns to take on the journey, but if you don't have a car with gas in it, it doesn't matter. And so what we need and what we start with and where we have started is with the gospel, with the cross of Christ and with the spirit of Christ. And when we see God's love for us in Jesus, we see God's power for us in the Holy Spirit, we then, are, we, we then can begin the journey toward healthy relationships. So how do we navigate with that in mind? If we know our destination and we know our transportation, our destination being the call of God to love Him and our neighbor, if we know our transportation, that is uh, the power of God and the gospel and the crucifixion of Christ, then what is our direction? How are we going to get there? We need a way to get there. And I think the way we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is the way... Of love. Uh, There are uh, very famous passages in the Scripture. If you know anything about the Bible, maybe you don't know anything about the Bible, but if you know anything about the Bible, you probably know a few verses, and one of them may be uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter on love. Now, I know there are all sorts of people in this room. You know, we're, we're, we, we, we talk about this every week, that we're, every time we gather together, we have older people and we have younger people. We have people who have never even, you know, they they don't remember a time when you couldn't just order anything on Amazon, and then we have people who are like, yeah, I remember Woolworths. (laughs) We have people who are uh, white, and we have people who are black. We have people who are politically conservative. We have people who are politically liberal. We have people who are really wealthy, or at least really comfortable, and we have people who are really, really struggling financially. Some of you can't remember the last time you went to church. And others of you can't remember the last time you didn't go to church. We, I, I, and I understand as we're looking at this passage that, um, and, and you look at the scripture that some of you are going to have different sort of perspectives. For some of you, First Corinthians might as well be a foreign language. When I say 1 Corinthians 13, that doesn't mean anything to you. You don't even know like what, what, what to do with that. Others of you, you're like, I love the Bible from the table of contents to the maps. I know it backwards and forwards. I've taught Bible studies. I know, I know it all, or I know a lot. Some of you are really, really uh, invested in knowing the Scripture and believing it. Others of you, maybe you saw a special on the History Channel, and you're sort of skeptical. You think, well, oh, there's problems. There's contradictions. And what, we, what I ask you each week, I'm going to ask you again this week. I'm going to ask you... To open your mind and your heart and just be willing to hear what God might have for you. To, to pray that God would help you understand. If you're brave enough to, to pray that with me, would you just pray uh, that with me? And we're also gonna we're gonna, we're gonna lay hands on this, this headset mic and just pray that the the, the crackles go You know, the, the rice crispy. Cast out the spirit of rice Krispies from the All right, would you just pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I just pray you would open our hearts uh, to you, to your word, that uh, you would help us to see uh, what is true and, and, and to, to, to see if it makes sense and to believe it even. Lord, I pray for, for us to be able to implement some of these things in our lives and in our relationships. I pray that this message would be a, a starting block, a starting point of healing for, for some, some relationships in this room. Uh, I just pray you would be with me as I speak, that I would speak what you want me to speak, to speak your truth and nothing else. Um, we we just ask, uh, uh, do ask for the technology just to to, to hang in there. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your blessing of the technology that we do have in so many ways. And, uh, and you would just have freedom. Your Holy Spirit would have freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians is uh, a book of the Bible, but it's also, it was a letter. It was a letter written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul was a man who became a Christian uh, shortly after Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And he actually used to persecute the church. He would actually uh, chase Christians down and try to arrest them and imprison them because he thought they were heretics and and he hated what they stood for. One day, Jesus literally knocks him uh, to the ground in a vision and he brings him to understanding that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And then for the next 25, 30 years, the the next decades and the rest of his life, Paul, the apostle, uh, spends uh, his life planting new churches he goes from uh, jerusalem to antioch throughout the roman empire and in every major city he can go to he tells people about jesus the messiah and and the and how uh, that they can run not away from god but can run to god that they can turn from their sin and, and trust in christ and that if they do they, their sin will be forgiven and they'll be given new life and they'll be given hope and, and when people would hear that message and believe it, they, they would have their life changed, and then they would gather together in these little groups that became churches. And he would go into these cities, and one of these cities where he would go and where he did go was a city called Corinth, which is why the church is called the Corinthian Church. Um, and and the, 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 the Corinthian Church was sort of like a super gifted but totally high-maintenance sort of child that you might have like like so smart so creative but just an absolute drama beyond belief this was the corinthian church and they they had a bunch of issues and so they paul is writing them this letter to address the issues that they're having and also to answer some questions that they've asked him in a letter of their own and one of the issues that that uh is happening in the church is concerning sp- what are called spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, verse 1, and then for, from chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 14, uh, we see that Paul is talking about this issue of spiritual gifts. If you look in chapter 12, verse 1, you can you know, scroll back one, or uh, in, in your Bible, it might even be on the same page. I think it's also going to be on the screen. Now concerning spiritual gifts. So this is the context of 1 Corinthians 13, this famous chapter on love, is actually found in Paul's uh, explanation of the fact that there are different types of people, different types of abilities, and that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and empowers that person for different types of things. And he uses this image in chapter 12 of a body. Maybe you've heard a church called a body. Well, this is where it comes from. And, and, you know, obviously we have a body, you know, head and shoulders, knees and toes, eyes and ears, mouth and nose. We, there's, we have one body, but there are different parts of our body. And Paul is saying that, that that's how the church is there is one body, but there are different parts. So one person's really good uh, at administration and leadership, one person may be really good at teaching. Another person may have the ability to prophesy or even do healing. He talks about in chapter 12. And those are things that are like, if that happened, if, if someone came in here and um, was in a wheelchair, and if they got healed, we would be like, whoa, whoa, that's amazing. There would there'd be no way we wouldn't tell someone about that this week. But what Paul says is, as great as that is, I want to show you in verse 31 of chapter 12 what he calls an even better way. So more miraculous than the most miraculous thing you could think of is what Paul calls the way of love, or what, what he calls an even better way, and what, what we're calling uh, the way of love, and that's in 1 Corinthians 13. And So if you're there, um, we're, we're going to really zoom in on verses 4 through 8, but first just quickly, um, what we see in the first three verses is the, the superiority of love. So love is superior to eloquence in verse 1. It's superior to intelligence in verse 2. It's, in, it's superior to, to extravagance in verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 8, um, he, he gives a very uh, powerful explanation of what true love is so if our goal is to have healthy relationships good marriage good good family healthy friendships healthy singleness whatever whatever our season is we the way to get there and, and if the way to get there is to love our neighbor as ourself then we need to know what love is i almost want to sing i want to know what love is anyway no one okay good As we look at this, we're going to find some very helpful practices for our relationships that you can apply. You can apply to your marriage. You can apply to your parenting, to your singleness, to your friendships. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, 13 verses 4 through 8. And I'm going to ask you to do something we haven't done uh, a lot, but I'm going to ask you to stand up as we read the Scripture together out of reverence for the Word of God. We might make this a habit. Maybe we'll just do it this week. We're brand new. It's awesome. We can just love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is God's word. Please be seated. There are almost 20 ways Paul describes love here. Um, Depending on how you count them, 17, 18, 19 ways that he describes love. And it's sort of like turn by turn. You know, you pull up the map. And it's like, get detailed directions. And it's like, go 600 feet, turn right. Go 2.1 miles, turn left. This is sort of like turn-by-turn instructions on what it means to love another person. And I think we can summarize the whole passage in three little words. Love elevates others. Love prioritizes the needs of the other person above the needs of yourself. This is the way forward. So so we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at what love does, and then we're going to look at what love doesn't do. We're going to talk about it and maybe give some helpful ways to kind of put that into practice. Not the only way, but maybe some helpful ways. The first, love is patient. Love is patient. I've heard someone say that the best way to prepare for marriage, if you're a man, is to get in your car, to sit for 15 minutes, before going anywhere. <laughs> and, and, then, and then to go. Because marriage requires patience. I think half of my arguments with my wife have been the fact that I like to be early and she doesn't care about being on time. And so for me, I want to be five minutes early and she's like 15 minutes late. Eh, she's a native South Floridian. What's the big deal? A few years ago, um, we were doing family Christmas, uh, family Christmas card, and we were getting pictures taken. A friend of ours was is a photographer and had given us a good deal for family pictures. And so, we're trying to get the kids ready. We only had two kids at this time. We thought it was all hard, and then now we have three. Some of you have more than that. It's, uh, I, you know, so we thought it was stressful. And we're running late. We're trying to get all these matching outfits and all that. And we're meeting at a park, and and you know, we're trying to hit the that golden hour of daylight. And, uh, and, and, and we're, we're running really, really late, like not like five minutes late. We're, like, we're running like like 30 minutes late to this, uh, this appointment we have for this, this photo shoot for our family. And, um, and, and, and what happened is I got super stressed out because I didn't like to be late. It was so stressful. We're trying to get the kids ready. We're changing diapers, putting clothes on. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're snapping at each other, and we're getting irritated, and we make it, and you see the picture, it looks beautiful, we're all smiling, we were angry, and it's, <laughs> fakest is the fakest, they, they came out great, <laughs> they came out great, right? But what we found out is that getting stressed out, and I'm still learning this, and maybe you are too, um, it didn't make us on time, it just made us miserable and late, instead of just being late. Um, love is patient in the short term. To Pause, take a breath. There are very few things in your life that hang on 15 minutes one way or the other. There's just very few things that hang on that amount of time. And often it's that we want to be perceived as someone who's on time, or we like to feel like we can kind of compose ourselves before something. So when, you know, when your spouse, maybe you're the on-time spouse, maybe you're the late spouse, um, but if you're the on-time spouse, just, just take a breath and just, just pause and, and, and pray, like, God, help me. Help me to be patient in this moment, that it's not that big a deal. Ten minutes isn't that big a deal. It feels really big in the moment, but it's not that big in the grand scheme. Some of you, um, last week, you made a commitment that you're going to pray for someone in your, in your life, and you've committed to pray for that person. And, um, and you've been praying consistently, and it's been a week, and you're like, all right, Lord, like, tapping your watch, like, when are you going to start answering? Like, I've been praying for a week, you know, and, and when are you going to start working in, in my husband's life, or my wife's life, or my daughter's life, or my son's life, or my friend's life? Like what? L- love is patient in the short term, but it's also patient in a long-term sense. Um, God is never going to be done working with you, or your wife, or your husband, or your kids, your friends. He's never going to be done working with you on this side of heaven. You will always be under construction and a work in progress. To be patient. There's going to be a gap between who you are now and who they are now and who God is going to make them to be. Be patient and realize that this is an ongoing journey. And if you truly love someone, you're going to see them with the eyes of faith. Not who for, for who they are now, but for, not even for who they could be potentially, but for who, if they are in Christ, God has promised to make them. If you're single, practice patience in your relationships. If you're married, practice patience. Wait. Be patient, because why should you be patient? How can you be patient? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, God is patient with you. If you have any amount of self-awareness, you know that God has been incredibly patient with you. And if, if if you have any amount of self-awareness, you know that God should have struck you dead a long time ago. If you have any amount of self-awareness, you know God has been patient and kind to you. How can you be any less with the people you say you love the most? Love is patient. Love is kind um this sometimes we think of kindness as sort of a synonym for niceness like just being nice like friendly and not too you know not not too like you know cut and dry sort of easygoing but still with a little bit of a you know a backbone um the word here for kindness is actually a lot deeper and a lot more ferociously beautiful than that um one one uh, biblical dictionary defines it as God's gracious attitude and acts towards sinners. Ephesians 2.7 says that in heaven, what we will get, that what God gives us in heaven is the immeasurable riches of his kindness. Immeasurable riches of his kindness. That, that what God gives us, is kindness. So it's not just being nice, it is being generous. It is giving above and beyond what somebody actually deserves. And here's here's a very practical way to be kind to the people you love. Do generous things for them when they don't expect it and when they don't deserve it and when they deserve actually the opposite. I learned this, I just, I learned this from my dad. So my my dad used to send my mom every once in a while a bouquet of flowers because she was a teacher, and there would be a bouquet of flowers that came to the school for her, and they'd be in her classroom, and her coworkers would come up to her and say, there would be three questions. Question one, ooh, is it your birthday or anniversary? Answer, no. Question two, oh, well, what did he do wrong? Answer, nothing. Then question three, well, then what are they for? And there's the answer. Just because. Just because for no reason other than he loves me. Just generosity for no obvious reason except that you love them. This is, this is how God treats us. He gives us far above all that we can ask or think. Be generous. Be gracious. Make it a point to, to give When there's no reason to give and and even every reason not to give. This is how God has treated us in Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is what love does. Love waits. Love gives. Now now we see a big list of things that love doesn't do. Starting there again in verse 4. What love doesn't do. First, love doesn't envy. Love doesn't envy. The the, the idea here is, is, is a word for strong desire, and the idea is you're, you're wanting something somebody else has. Now, some of you think, well, that doesn't really affect my marriage or my kids. My, I'm not really envious of them. like. But actually, I wonder, I wonder if that's the case. One of the most profound verses for diagnosing conflict and problems in a relationship is in James 4.2 i think it's going to be on the screen look what it says in james 4 2 you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel inside the heart of every one of you and inside me is a little two-year-old who is crying mine We see someone with something that we want, and we get angry when we don't get it. Now, when you're two, it's because they have a toy truck or a doll, and when they won't share or when they take it from you, you get angry and you cry and you get upset. Well, when you're 42, it's a lot more subtle than that. Because what you want is you want respect. You want to know that that person cares for you. You want that person not to criticize you. Too much. What you want from them is not a bad thing, and in fact, it's a good thing. The problem is you weaponize your desire, and when they don't get from that person you love what you want, you bring out the verbal machine gun, and it's like game on. If half of the conflict in my marriage, I'll just be a little open with you, uh, is, is me being impatient, the other uh, half is me being sensitive. So, so like, my wife is um, very smart very good at diagnosing what's wrong, and really good at saying what she thinks. So this is sort of, this is sort of a, a combustible thing because I don't particularly like being wrong. I don't know, maybe you do, but I don't. I, I don't like being wrong. But what I like a lot less than being wrong is being told that I'm wrong. As bad as it is to be wrong, it's even worse to have it pointed out. And so when she may say, and she may be completely right, hey, this, this, or this, it's usually when we're driving because we're already running late. And then she's like, hey, watch out. And this, this, is, this is the source of our, our conflict. And maybe you're, obviously, every relationship is different. James 4, two diagnoses the reason for this. Why do I get so upset? What do I want from her? Well, I want to be right. I want her to respect me. Those are good things. I want want to have her think that I'm great, which is good. Like, that's good. But then when I don't get it, it's, you know, World War III. What are you looking for that person to give you? Maybe it's like you're looking for your son to give you a sense of accomplishment. For him to succeed where you didn't succeed or for him to measure up to your success. Maybe maybe you're looking for your kids to give you grandkids and it's a source of conflict because you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. Maybe you're looking for your kids to just give you a little peace and quiet and sleep and when you don't get what you want you, you, you get frustrated and you snap and you yell. Maybe you want your husband to just give you some attention and just talk with you and just relate to you, you know, heart to heart. And that's a good desire, but then when you don't get it, you sort of weaponize it. And then you manipulate and you sulk and you respond in a way that's at least as sinful as him not doing that in the first place. Maybe you have a friend and you want them, like you feel like it's like you're carrying the weight of the friendship and you're always the one texting, calling, hey, let's grab lunch or whatever. And you just want them to to, to take the first step once in a while. Like, are we really friends? And that's a good desire. That's fine. That's healthy. But then when you don't get it, you weaponize it. You get irritated and you say, fine, if they're not going to call me, I'm not going to call them. Love doesn't envy, love doesn't boast. Look at there in verse 4. Again, it's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He's sort of stacking these words up to build up this idea of, of what it means to, to truly love someone. Boasting. Well, I, that's that one's easy to think we don't do, right? Because you're not like bragging, you know m- maybe you have a f- like i've friendships i've had friendships and there's like a sl- subtle edge of competition and it's sort of like trying to see like one up or whatever and some of it's you know good natured but then there's this sort of like man i want to i want to be better maybe i don't know your marriage or if you're married like maybe it's i don't know if you boast maybe you don't see that as an issue but here's here here's one way that can happen is when when you and this is just, just something that, that you probably already know, but it's just a very helpful practice. When you use absolute words like never and always, like you never, blah, blah, blah. You always, blah, blah, blah. That's a way of boasting because what you're implying is you never, but I do. You always, but I don't. You're implying that that person is not as good as you. You're boasting in your strengths in that area or sometimes you may maybe you use like the diet version of those words like consistently you, you know you are very often doing this or that you know you you never do the dishes or this is positioning the person below you and it's it's boastful and it's what he says there it's it's also arrogant it's looking down finding fault thinking always looking at, at what is wrong and needs to be fixed and pointing that out. Maybe it's just always correcting your kids and always forgetting to praise them. So recently, so I'm coaching Judson's, my five-year-old son's soccer team, one of his coaches, and um, I'm not athletic, but I am competitive, so that's a really good combination for me. Um, and uh, and he is athletic. And, and so at his last not this yesterday, but the game before that, We, we, uh, the game was, a, the match was a draw, 0-0. But in the first quarter, he had a wide open net and he was right in front of it and he booted the ball and he just kicked it a little too far to the left. It was like, oh! And then we didn't, you know, we ended up not winning the game and that would have been the game-winning goal. And I was really trying to be like, you did so great because he really did, he did really, really well. And, but I just, I kept saying like, I thought I was being really nice. I'm like, "Man, you did so awesome. And can you imagine if you'd actually get, got that goal in, you know? Or next time, remember, you don't have to rush." And you just and I apparently I just kept saying it over and over cuz finally we got home and Laura brings me side she's like, "Danny, let it go." Like you keep bringing it up and bringing it up, bringing it up, looking down, looking for ways to criticize instead of just building building him up. Love is not arrogant. Love doesn't look for ways that Someone has failed. Love isn't rude. Maybe it's like when you get together with the guys, there's sort of like some off-color humor or some very off-color humor. Love, love and loving friendship won't take you down that path. Love is not self-seeking. This is sort of this idea of like, what can I get out of this? You're looking for how will this relationship make me better? How will this relationship benefit me? Maybe you you have yet to find a really healthy, romantic relationship because you're always viewing the other person as a means for some sort of fulfillment in your own life rather than loving them for who they are. Maybe you don't have deep friendships because every friendship you have with someone is this sort of like profit and loss, like cost-benefits analysis. And it's I have a friend and... uh and he's, like, he's just a very driven guy, and so he is your best bud as long as he thinks you have something he, you can do for him. And then when you don't, it's like ghost town. And I have some other friends, mutual friends, they've been really hurt by this, because this, they were really good friends, or so they thought, but then it was like, there was no obvious benefit to him. It was like, not like animosity, but just like, okay, I mean, there's no reason for us to hang out. You can't do anything for me anymore. Love is not e- irri- easily angered or easily irritated. In verse 5, it's not irritable. So, some of you just, quite honestly, you're just way too sensitive. It's like hair trigger. You're, you are any little any little thing, it's like you're you're it sets you off. Lo- love isn't irritated. Imagine if God treated you that way. Any little thing, imagine any little thing you did wrong if God. Triggered like you do when any little thing happens to you. Irritability is really just being selfish. It's just pride. It's saying like, I deserve better than this. Everyone around me owes me perfection. And when anything's wrong, I am going to make it known. I don't want to be inconvenienced. It's, it's all about myself. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Some of you are like master librarian like Dewey Decimal System catalog of everything that's happened. And you can't remember, you know what? You say, I can't memorize the Bible, but you can remember every single thing that person has ha- done to you over the past however many years. And you keep it like an armory in your closet, and it's like a gun rack. And when it's time for conflict, you open it up and you are ready. Uh, I'm... I thought I wasn't, I didn't struggle with this, and then I I got married, and I realized, oh, wow, I'm bringing up something from 2007. Like, that's a problem. Like, that is not forgiveness. It's amazing what an argument can do for your memory, isn't it? You can't remember, you forget birthdays, you forget anniversaries, you forget this and that, but then it's like, everything becomes crystal clear, and you remember and you have this record of wrongs, this catalog and you everything for you is ammunition that you can bring in. no don't let me don't hear me saying that some of you have not suffered and I know some of you have suffered terrible things uh, at the hands of other people and keep not keeping a record of wrongs mean, doesn't mean that you just ignore all of that because there is a, a need for grief, there's a need for healing, uh, closure, maybe counseling. I, I'm not discounting any of that. W- what I am saying is that y- you can't use that as a weapon, whether it's a huge thing or it's a little thing, against another person. Because, this is, this, uh, because the reality is that's not how God treats us. In Genesis 15:6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that, that God did not, He took the record of debt against us, Colossians 2.15 says, and He nailed it to the cross. God is not taking all of the stuff you've done that you totally forgot about because it's been 20 years, but God every day is like today, and He remembers your sin against Him, but He is not using it against you if you are in Christ. He has forgiven you, and if He has done that for you, then you can certainly do that for others. One of the most healthy things you can implement, if you don't already do this in your relationships, in your marriage, is nine words from the heart. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Not, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I just was blah, 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 really tired, and you just kind of irritated me a little bit. No, no explanations, no excuses. Look for what you did in that situation because you weren't perfect one, I, heard, I heard a sermon early in our marriage that really had a profound influence on me, and he was saying, and it was a, a sermon to men, he said, even if you feel like you're 99% right, take that 1% you did wrong and genuinely apologize and repent without bringing up the other 99%. And it will change things. Maybe it's simply that you reacted in a poor way to something that, you know, maybe you did nothing wrong and it's like all of a sudden there's World War III and it's like, oh my goodness, what just happened here? And so you snap back and you think, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just responding. Well, you still sinned in your response and you say, you know what? In that conversation, I really was wrong in the way I spoke to you when when you were talking to me. Um, I've no excuse. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And that's it. No like, okay. Your turn. No expectations, no excuses, no explanations. When the other person then asks for forgiveness, here's the other key. You actually have to grant it to them. Not just like, oh, no big deal, whatever. But genuinely, like, I forgive you. I am... Wiping the record of wrongs clean. I am erasing the ledger. I am deleting the Excel spreadsheet. It's gone. I forgive you. And sometimes, most of the time, you don't want to do it because you're still super angry, and you want to be. Sometimes I apologize to my. I'm really. I, I, I do a, I mess up in a, a lot, and so I apologize a lot. And um and Laura's like, I don't want to forgive you yet. I'm still really angry. And and I've been the same way. You don't want to forgive. You want to sort of have that against the other person. And then you remember what God did for you. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us immediately. And if God does that for you, then how can you not do that for the people you say you love the most? Immediately. From the heart. I think this is one of the most important keys to any healthy relationship. I have friends who are like, we never fight. We just it's just beautiful. And I'm like, that's great. That's not that's like like that's not reality for us. What is reality for us is like we sin against each other, we get upset with each other, we, we you know, we do get out that verbal machine gun sometimes, but then we always admit that we're wrong, ask forgiveness, and we grant it. We wipe the slate clean. We don't go to bed mad. And so it, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves a whole lot of them. Finally, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It's amazing how much of this description of love can be summarized By saying you joyfully put up with someone. You just, you joyfully put up with their stuff and you don't give up on them. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time doesn't heal all wounds, but what God often does is God heals many wounds over time. Time does not heal all wounds, but God doesn't and will heal many wounds over time. Take the long view. Take the next step. I'm, I'm close with this. Ask God to give you faith to see what could this be? What could this marriage be? What could this family be? What could this friendship be? What could this life of mine be in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years? If the, the way of love has all of these sort of turn-by-turn turn directions, What is the one you need to take today? What is something that's just, as we've been talking, that's resonated in your heart? Like, I need to make this a part of my life and my relationships. Maybe it's you need to start saying I love you to your wife and your kids every day. You just need to say I love you, you know, every day, twice a day. Because you don't say it enough, you kind of assume it. Maybe you need to start that I was wrong I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Maybe you need to implement that as a practice in your life, in your family, in your relationships. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, you're going to take those divorce papers and you're going to put them in the shredder when you get home and believe that God can fix this. Maybe you take your kid off the travel team because it's really your dream and not his dream on your connection cards that are on your seat there are two 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 responses there on the right hand side that list a sim- a place where you can say this is a simple next step that I can take and that I need to take i'm going to ask god to help me and if if you feel that you're you're being being led to 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 respond in some way. I just encourage you to, to just do that and to say, here's one small way I can begin the way of love. To take the journey of the way of love. Maybe your next step is just to say, you know, I, I know we need something more in our life. And I know that that we're being called to be a part of something bigger than just us and our family and maybe that step for you is I'm just going to come back next week for the fourth part of this series on relationships and on on finding out what it means to love God and love my neighbor as myself. See, I don't, I don't know if I can sign on full time. I don't know if I can do all this, that, and the other. But I know I can at least show up one more time next week. And maybe that's what God's calling you to do. I'm going to just give you a second to fill that out, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I just ask that you would use these words to renovate the hearts of those who are here, me me included, Lord, to, 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 to walk in the way of love. Lord, I just ask that you would take relationships that are struggling and that you would take something that is messy and broken and make it something that is beautiful that that 1 Corinthians 13 would be true in our lives and our relationships and we thank you for the way that you have loved us in the gospel and sending your Son, making it possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.